Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ today to open the Scriptures, to fellowship, to encourage one another, and, Lord, to together put ourselves under the Word of God to be taught, trained, equipped, motivated, and so on. Lord, we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world that listens online. We pray for them that you would help them find the remnant in their area to begin to gather together with other Christians to open the Scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would raise up churches that would be solid in the Word all around the world so that people would not be deprived of fellowship. And we pray for them. And we pray that this Sunday morning would bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We've we've spent quite a time in 2 Corinthians 8 and learned a lot about what the Lord wants us to know about giving, money and giving. And we have discovered that if you study what the Scripture says about this topic, it's quite different than what's typically taught. And it's certainly quite different than your typical fundraising programs over the years in churches because, in fact, it's almost the opposite. It's really the opposite. So we've had some good discussions on 2 Corinthians 8. And now chapter 9 will bring the discussion forward a little bit. I introduced verses 1 through 5 last week because it's more of a kind of a background and Paul's describing a potential problem that he wants to avert, but he, he wants to do it in kind of a, how would you say it? It's a difficult pastoral situation because it, what he has to say could be taken the wrong way. He doesn't want to wrongly motivate anybody, but he wants to forestall something that could happen. Talked about that last week. And what could happen was, I was going to quote Barnett on that because I thought he gave a good summary of what the issue is as well as I could do. And here, here's an overview of the situation. He says this, Since in the previous chapter the churches appear to be Macedonian churches, it is preferable to regard the unnamed brothers, 8, 18, 22, and 9, 3, as apostles. Remember we talked about apostolos doesn't always mean one of the twelve. It can just mean a messenger, functional terminology. So these, these are apostles, but they're not really apostles in the way we think of apostles. They're just messengers from Macedonia whose job is to go to Achaia, where Corinth is, with a collection and probably, presumably, going on from there. Okay, So these apostles who would be elected to accompany the collection to Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8, 19, 2 Corinthians 8, 23, Acts 23 and 4, these had heard Paul say, quote, the Achaeans have been prepared since last year They are prepared. Verses 2 and 3. In the presence of Paul, let not these Macedonians find the Corinthians unprepared, and thus bringing shame to Paul and to them. So the delicate situation is that he really does want the Corinthians to participate. They said they were earlier, said they were prepared to participate. And he's worried that now he told the Macedonians, the the Achaeans, the Corinthians are prepared to participate, and they get there, and the Corinthians are going to say, no, we just said we don't want anything to do with this. 
And that would be a very awkward situation that he's trying to forestall. But doing it in a way that he does not want to use shame to be the primary motivation for their giving, but he does want to forestall the situation. So that being said, let me just read verses 1 through 5 again. We talked about this a little last week. And once we get into verse 6, then we'll get into some more details about giving. He says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry of the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So now we have the issue where the, the zeal that was reported to the Macedonians about the Achaeans have been part of the motivation for them to participate. So that's one of the reasons he doesn't want to bring shame either to the Corinthians or to Paul. Verse 3, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. All right, we'll talk about that a bit when we get there. Now, I think I talked about verse 1, verse 2. There's a, the, word, the word readiness there from the Greek, prothumia, means eagerness to engage in an activity or an event. So they're to be eager, and they've been boasted about. It stresses confidence. As we said, Paul's concerned that when he gets there, he doesn't want this to turn into a bad situation. Uh, Troy, could you look up 1 Corinthians 16, 15, and Joanne, Hebrews 10, 24? Go ahead. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and they and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Okay. So there, there were people in Achaia that were devoted to serving. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 16 also mentions this offering. It's amazing how often this offering comes up in the Bible. You find it in Romans, you find it in 1 Corinthians 16, you find it in 2 Corinthians, and you find it in Acts. And as we said, the reason this was so important to Paul, the probable reason that this comes up so often, was that Paul wanted this offering to speak about the unity of the gospel between the, the Gentile churches and the Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. And one of Paul's battles that you see him fighting throughout his ministry is that, that Judaizers would have their way in the church and would create some sort of a separate Jewish church and that there wouldn't be the one new man that he's talking about in Ephesians 2. Joanna and then, then Keith. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And the reason that's a cross-reference is that's what's going on here. The, the generosity of the Macedonians becomes a stimulation, stimulant to the Achaeans that they too participate in this offering for the relief of the poor saints in Judea. 
Isn't it true then when Paul actually delivered the offering that that's when he got put in prison and everything happened? So that was really his last act as a free man, as at least as it's given to us in the New Testament, that his last uh, free action was to bless the Jews who, had, who then put him in prison and sent him on to Rome to go free? <laughs> that's true. As you read the narrative of Acts, there's a lot of uh, material about Paul's trip to Jerusalem including, remember, people begging him not to go, Agabus telling him he's going to be bound when he's there, and they're pleading with him not to go. And then Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? Remember that? He says, I'm ready to die if necessary. And Paul was intent on going to Jerusalem, no matter what anybody said. Yeah, and one of the things to do was to deliver the offering. And he emphasizes we have to be able to see that from all the different times it's mentioned in these different books of the Bible. So it was very important to him, and it was a gospel issue because by the Gentiles sending relief to the Jewish Christians, the, the church is expressing its unity in the gospel. Because there was a very real danger in Paul's mind that you end up with a Jewish church keeping the law and a Gentile church that's different. And, and that's why the Galatian heresy is uh, anathematized to forestall that sort of thing. And this offering was part of this process to show the unity of the church. And when Paul was intent on going, we, we see some very touching and emotional scenes in the book of Acts. Now, Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. Okay, So he, he makes it there, presumably with the offering. I don't know... I'm scanning Acts with my mind right now, and it kind of may have some blanks in it, but <laughs> you never know. Does anybody know that when, that when Paul actually got to Jerusalem, we presume he brought the offering because he says so many times he did, but it doesn't mention it once he gets there. Somebody wanted to check on that. I don't know if it's actually mentioned when he gets to Jerusalem, but we can presume he delivered it. What's mentioned when he gets there is the conflicts with the Jews and his imprisonment and plots to kill him, and his appearances before these magistrates, and his uh, preaching the gospel before kings. Uh, it's a very beautiful thing. And I'm going to preach Luke Acts. I'm working on Luke Acts, but I don't know how many years. Uh, I, I'm promising that so you'll pray for my health and longevity. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, it, there's a lot of what, what happens when he gets to Jerusalem has to do with the Gentiles and slash Jews. It doesn't mention the money specifically. Right. It says in Acts 21, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Okay. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And you see how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told that you, you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. What then is to be done? So it, it's very much in that context yeah. that he gets there, and you can assume that the money is yeah. going to help mitigate that concept. It, yeah, that, I'm assuming, there's no reason to assume it wasn't delivered, but they didn't pick up on that, what happened with the money when they actually got there. All right, that's how I thought it went. So, going to verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 9, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting, that's a noun in the Greek, by the way, about you may not be made empty. And in this case, so that 
as I was saying, you may be prepared. And again, that's a good translation. Prepared is a very good translation there. Boast is a word that Paul uses a lot, and he uses it both negatively and positively in the New Testament. He talks about, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. But then in other places, he says boasting is excluded. Because if boasting would be about our own works, or boasting in the flesh, that would be a very bad thing. But he doesn't hesitate to use the term in a positive way as a virtue that somebody had. Or he's not afraid to use the term, I think it's, what is it, boast is cacao? Oh, there it says kakema. All right, boast. Well, it depends on the, I think it depends on the tense. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm trying to not embarrass myself anymore. I've been printing out my interlinear Greek of the passages that we are studying, so if anybody asks, I don't have to remember it up here. I, I, I look it all up. I look up, now in my studies, I look every single passage up in the Greek before I come to teach it, mostly thanks to that Lagos software. Yeah, kenothe is kanao, empty. You probably heard that word. You ever heard of the kenosis theory? Yeah, that, that the idea that some people take the idea of kenosis too far when it talks about Jesus emptying himself in Philippians 2. And so there's a debate of what exactly did Jesus empty himself of, and that's where that kenosis comes from. All right, uh, brag. Kakema is kind of the word... It's used here. And so, you'll have to look at the context. Words are, there's a range of meanings in all languages, whether it's Greek or Hebrew or English or any, any human language, will have, have words that have a range of meaning. And when you look a word up, you have to be aware of that range. And you can use books that will help you, that will give you a range. That Launida is a really nice resource. That's integrated into my Lagos, and I use it all the time. Um, you can have these theological word books. They'll give you a range of meaning. But in the end, at the end of the day, it's the context that reveals the author's meaning. All right? Now, all that other stuff, the etymology studies, the Greek words and all that stuff, they're tools, but the tool is only helping you understand the context. And so that will give the meaning. So here Paul's using the word in a positive way. Let's go on to verse 4. I want to get to 6 as soon as possible where we get into some more teaching about giving that will help us understand what God expects of us in giving. Verse 4. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Interesting use of hypostasis there. That's another word with an interesting range of meaning. Have you ever heard in theology of the hypostatic union? Okay. And that is that phrase is used in regard to the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his deity, the hypostatic union. Well, that comes from a Greek word that's used in various different ways in the New Testament. Some of the more intriguing ways are in the book of Hebrews, such as in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the, the under the, uh, when it's related to faith. But here it's used to mean the confidence or assurance. It literally means undertaking or understanding or having a, being under. Hupo is under an instasis. But here it would be assurance would be the best translation of the, 
of the word. And Paul worries that the whole plan could falter and lead to an unhappy situation. And rather than bringing the unity that he hoped and the blessing that he hoped and all of the wonderful things, he uses the word grace. And if you look in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, the term charis, grace, is used over and over and over again. So the first thing you need to know about giving is it comes from grace. Now it works. All right. Now, verse 5. So, I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift not affected by covetousness. Now he's introducing a word that will be repeated in uh, the next verse the term bountiful gift literally means gift of blessing, and it's the word eulogia, from which we get our word eulogy. Okay? And he uses it again twice in verse 6. Uh, and, and so he's emphasizing something by using repeated phrases. So Paul is sending these other guys ahead, I believe, as I'm understanding this text correctly, I hope I am, in order that in case there's a problem, Paul doesn't want to be present when it happens. Because him being there, he thinks, might make it even worse. So they're going ahead and making sure they're prepared, and then Paul comes is going to come, and they're going to put all the money together from Achaia and from Macedonia, and they're going to go on, and ultimately it's going to go to Jerusalem. See, they, you know, they didn't have Western Union back then. All right? So you had to physically carry money from one place to another in the form of, you know, probably gold or silver or something like that. So there was a, uh, not only uh, possibility of wrong motives, because he didn't want, Paul was, wanted to be sure that no disrepute came, because somebody could be stealing money like Judas used to do from the money pouch that he carried around. And so he wanted godly men to accompany him to make sure this is all on the up and up. Yes. Why would Paul's presence, if, if there was a sticky situation, make it worse? Because he already had a conflict that had, had just uh, in the background. If you remember, Second Corinthians is probably one of the most difficult books of the Bible to interpret. And we've been working our way through it for a long time. And the reason it's difficult is that there's things going on between Paul and the Corinthians, some of which that were discussed in his severe letter. And there are things that Paul and the Corinthians are privy to that we're not. Yeah, there's a missing letter and there's some missing information. So as you're going through Corinthians, you have to fill in blanks. And so, Gretchen, uh, in answer to your question, previously he was afraid they were going to turn against him once and for all follow the super apostles, and there, it was already touchy and difficult between Paul and Corinthians. Titus had just come back with a good report that actually they'd repented and decided to listen. Okay, And so he's got some good feelings going on with them. And if he showed up and they weren't prepared, and their unpreparedness jettisoned the whole project, we'd be right back in all of our problems again. Okay, It's not easy doing pastoral ministry. Can you say amen, Gary? <laughs> there, there's just every kind of sticky situation that, that you had never dreamed could develop that can develop, and you got to deal with it. 
And you try to do so with wisdom and grace. You had to try to do so with wisdom and grace. And even at that, in that case, there's no guarantee things are going to go the way you hope they might go. I did have some quotes from scholars that I thought would help us understand this situation and maybe help answer your question. It's a good question, Gretchen, by the way. Very good question. Here's an explanation from, uh, this is Barnett again. So far from opportunist, opportunistically playing off one church against another, as is often concluded from this passage, Paul is rather seeking to preserve the reputation of the Corinthians in a situation of potential misunderstanding in which they would have lost face. Now remember, they had just repented, okay? And, but it's kind of a tender thing. Father-like, he expresses confidence in them, a confidence, he tells them, that he has expressed to others. Moreover, he is aware of the interprovincial sensitivities that are likely to have existed between Achaeans, the Achaeans and the Macedonians. Shame in Corinth would do nothing to strengthen the bonds between them and the northern churches, but rather to the contrary. So he wants to preserve the unity the goodwill, and wants everybody to participate, but he does not want to demand that every individual in Corinth has to give because he used the term free will, a word in chapter 8 that literally could be translated free will. It's not in the New American Standard. It's all the few times you ever find free will in the Bible. And it's talking about an offering. (laughs) Okay? So... Uh, moving along, I, I wanted to get to verse 6 because then we're kind of moving here. But thinking of that eulogia or gift of blessing, again, range of meanings. It could be even how we use our word eulogy, speaking well of someone. But here it has to do with the gift. Verse 6, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, before we say anything more about this verse, we need to understand that he's using an agricultural metaphor. So think about agriculture and literal planting, and then we'll get an idea of his meaning. Now, if you think about agriculture, let's say you have some seed, you have some whatever it is you're going to plant. Let's say you have some wheat, and you have to save some from last year, so you have something to plant. And what if it came springtime, and it came time to plant, and you thought, you know, I'd rather eat this wheat. I'm kind of hungry right now, and uh, I think I'd rather eat this rather than plant it in my, in my field. You wouldn't be a very good farmer, would you? Because the wheat planted in the field can, you, can yield a bountiful harvest. But if you take whatever little you got left to make a loaf of bread or grind it at the mill, you don't have any seed. You don't have any seed, you can't plant, you can't plant, you can't have a harvest, and your land sits there wasted. That's the metaphor. Now, what we need to do, and there's quite a few cross-references to this one, is to see what Paul means by that, because we've got to be careful. We don't want to dip into the health and wealth gospel. But on the other hand, we don't want to miss what Paul is saying. Okay? And he is saying that here in this verse that God does bless givers. But what does that mean? Um, so it says if you sow sparingly, 
as in, oh, it's one thing we know Brian never does in his garden. <laughs> Brian Beers here is a gardener, and he, and he, he sows bountifully out there, and he has crops growing out of years. You can't eat it all, right, Brian? <laughs> exactly. So you, you know how this works. Yeah, and he gives it to me. <laughs> Brian lives two blocks from me, and he keeps dropping tomatoes and lettuce off. And is that good? That's good, Brian. Thank you. <laughs> sharing the wealth. Sharing the wealth. He has a bountiful harvest, and he shares the wealth with the pastor. <laughs> I didn't promise you a, a hundredfold increase, did I? <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> so uh, the bountiful ep. Ulogias and Laonidas is abundant in an abundant amount here, an abundant amount. And um, literally upon blessings, upon blessings. So the idea is that a free that the freely given generous gifts produce a bountiful yield. And another way of saying it is human generosity is rewarded with divine Generosity. That's uh, Bob Stein. My uh, um, that's that's his comment in Luke six thirty eight, which is one of our cross references. So God does bless givers. Now let me tell you what, how I believe this is, and then we'll look at some cross references, trying to make sure we get a biblical understanding. I believe that God blesses givers, but how He blesses them is 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 God's business, because he takes into consideration everything about each of us and does exactly what we need and what's best for us, okay? And so you can't take from this that where the health and wealth people go astray is they turn this into a mechanistic process rather than a providential one. Does that make sense? In other words, mechanistic would be you put the $10 in, God gives you $1,000 back. Yeah, they break it down to a formula and say it's going to operate that way. And so then you put your money in, and then when you don't get rich, you might go back to the preacher and say, well, it didn't work. And the preacher says, well, you don't have enough faith. It's never his fault. So it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. Now, here's what I would say about this, because this passage is here, and we need to take it seriously. God does bless givers. I believe God bless givers in many different ways. But how... And exactly how that works is totally between God and the person, and God's providentially in charge of it. How he blesses us. He may bless, uh, in fact, Paul does point out here as we go along that he, God gives seed to the sower. He may bless people financially in order that they might be, take care of the poor and give to others. That, that's in his passage. It's right there. And in the end of the day, for the people of faith, it's God that takes care of us throughout our life. And as we trust him, he cares for us from the cradle to the grave. And he knows what we need. And what we need is always in the context of being conformed to the image of Christ. So if we really needed to be wealthy from God's perspective, he's very capable of doing that. And I think I need to be wealthy. What do I... Okay, go ahead. Wouldn't I could... Cross-reference, like the antithesis of the health wealth guys, is when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler and he says, I've obeyed all these commandments, and Jesus says, sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have a treasure in heaven. Yeah. 
that what he needed was to give it all away so he'd have nothing, because then he would be blessed. But his blessing would be found in having nothing but riches in heaven. So God was giving him almost an exchange of something that was intangible for what he had tangible. So the blessing there would be becoming poor. Right. And I would maintain that that's specific to that man. Okay. In the early church, there was an do- interesting document. Well, I think it came out of Alexandria. I'm trying to remember who, which Alexandrian church father wrote it. There was a document called, Who is the Rich Man Being Saved? In church history. Who is the rich man being saved? Because the early church was grappling with that passage. And so they were trying to think, now, was Jesus saying that every Christian needs to divest himself of all their assets and live in poverty? And the early church father, I wish I remember who wrote that. It's on my computer if I had it. I'm not going to do that. I thought I'll bring my computer sitting here so I could go into Lagos. (laughs) But, uh, But the early church decided that this wasn't a universal command, okay? And that, obviously, if the rich young ruler was a universal moral law of God, that every single Christian had to divest himself of every single asset, that the church throughout its existence would always be impoverished and would not have any ability to help the poor because nobody would have anything because all the capital assets would be gone and there would be no income and no whatever. So back to what Keith mentioned, thinking about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler's problem was that money meant more to him than heaven and the kingdom of God. That's what his problem was. And he needed to, to, to in his case... That's what he needed to do. And he wasn't willing to do it. Glenn. Well, one of the biggest things that came out of this for the apostles as far as a huge paradigm shift was that they believed in their culture that the more money you got, the more you were blessed of God. And they were saying, well, how can we get into heaven? Uh-huh. And his answer is with God, you know, anything's possible, but man, it's not possible. Remember that? So what was happening is um, it kind of promotes... The election of individuals, too. In other words, you can't buy your way in, and because you have all the money, you get all the spiritual blessing. And that shocked the apostles. Huh. And, they, yeah, they said, well, who can be saved? Right. It's only possible with God. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, so God blesses givers. God blesses givers because it says so right here. How he does it is up to God. And... What we need is up to God. Now, some people went into error early in church history and actually believed that poverty meant spiritual piety. And they began, well, they began the monasteries, the oaths of poverty. So people are taking oaths of poverty to prove that they're more pious than everyone else around and make themselves totally dependent on somebody else around them. And that is as presumptuous as the health and wealth gospel. You're not going to be a better Christian because you make yourself wealthy, and you're not going to be a better Christian because you make yourself poverty-ridden. What God wants us to do is to have faith in Him and to trust Him and to live in faith and let God take care of us how He sees fit. Everyone is unique. Everyone has unique things. And I said, where was that article I was writing on this? I wrote an article about this. Oh, it's about spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines and why I disagreed with them. 
And one of the spiritual disciplines that you'll find in these books by people like Foster and Willard, I think it was Willard, is that uh, voluntary impoverishment. Some people say that's a spiritual discipline. If you voluntarily impoverish yourself, like they did in the monasteries, that that will be a discipline, and God will use that. Now, what I said in response to that is what this is, gets wrong, this approach, is it discounts God's personal providential rulership over each of our lives. And I suggested in the article that if the Lord knows what somebody needs is to be poor, he can arrange for that. <laughs> okay? And I hope the Lord doesn't know that's what I need, but you never, you never know. I've been there before. I've been poor before. The Lord sustained me in poverty early on in my Christian life, right? Actually, for quite a few years. Now, solitude. They said that's a spiritual discipline, solitude. So if you voluntarily uh, remove yourself from interaction with any other human being, so says Dallas Willard, and go into isolation, that that's a spiritual discipline. And he actually says that it's a necessary one. Because you can't grow when you're dealing with other people around you. But then he warns that it's very dangerous that when you get there, you might find demons in the dark night of the soul. So what kind of a discipline is going to lead you to some demonic ravine that you might not be able to pull yourself back out of? That's a bad one, yeah. So I quote that in one of my articles. The point of all of this is the moral command that we find here, the moral law of God. We were talking about those categories yesterday, and Gary was mentioned in his address yesterday, that... You have the revealed will of God, and then you have the secret things that God hasn't revealed, his providential will, and this other will doesn't exist that you have to try to find by some mystical process. So what's the moral will? Which one, what do we know here? His providential will we don't know. Is God going to make me rich? Is he going to make me poor? Or am I going to be just ordinary? I don't know that. In the, I don't know the future. That's in God's secret will. But what do we know about his moral will? That we ought to be generous. Is that right? The moral will teaches us to be generous. And the promise associated with obeying the moral will to be generous is that the Lord will cause us to reap a bountiful harvest as an analogy with a farmer. What the bountiful harvest is, is God's secret will. I'm not, I don't believe it's promising that you'll become wealthy. Right? Troy first and then Corlin. Well, speaking of the rich man, and uh, I think it comes down to uh, a matter of pride and humility. His, his issue was uh, pride. He didn't want to humble himself before God and do what he said. And, and covetousness? Wouldn't that be, have to do with the Tenth Commandment? I was just going to mention there are other prerequisites to giving uh, other than the mechanics of just deciding to give for one reason or another. It can, of course, be connected to works like you had mentioned before. Speak up. Okay. Prerequisites. Uh, The Lord desires, uh, if you can look at giving as a sacrifice, the Lord desires uh, obedience rather than sacrifice. And then I brought this verse up before in in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll read it because it's worthy of revisiting. If I give all, my, all I possess to the poor, and that's generosity, and that's sacrifice. Give all I, give, I possess to the poor. 
and even surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, the right attitude in my heart, mm-hmm. it means nothing. Yeah, it, certainly yeah. Won't agape, be it has to be motivated by agape love. And, it, and that would be the antithesis of the monastic idea that you hang yourself on a granite wall but some shackles and take an oath of poverty, and if you're miserable enough, long enough, God will consider you pious. But uh, that's not a means of grace, by the way. I'm glad. Thank God for that. I, I think this same concept is a good cross-reference is James 4. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You can oh. say that instead of asking, you're giving with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So if I'm giving so I have... Because I'm, if I'm giving out of covetousness and some preacher waves the bait of covetousness and say you give to me and you're going to be wealthy, I'm giving with wrong motives. And the worst thing that would happen was that God would make it work because now I'm being led down a path where oh, I'm feeding yeah. my covetousness and it's being successful. And if I do that long enough, I will just wander so far away from God I can't hear anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. And you, so you can put that sort of thing under the category of tempting God. Or jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? Uh, because, okay, God, I'm giving this money, and now you've got you to give me so much money back. Okay? You know, it keeps coming back to this verse because we talk about people giving, and there's a stewardship aspect to that, and I keep coming back to that Luke verse where it says, uh, so if you have not been trustworthy handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What do we find? Uh, Luke 16. True riches. Yeah, because the verse goes on to say, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, you know, uh, what do we have that we didn't receive? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of like, you know, if we're giving, we have to be stewardship of that giving as well. And, you know, when he talks about the parable of the talents, we're talking about faithfulness there. So are we faithful in our giving? Okay. Yeah, stewardship is certainly a valid concept. Oikonomos. Let's look up some uh, cross-references and then try to fill in a few of the blanks. Hopefully we understand this passage. And, well, where should we go? Robert, you got the mic. You should get to read a verse. <laughs> Proverbs 11.26. Rich, uh, Proverbs 19.17. And I'm going to help, have help with names. I've, Barb, Proverbs 22.9. Steve, Luke 6.38. And... <laughs> Pauline, <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs> she she works at the church office. I'm supposed to know her name. <laughs> okay, Pauline, Galatians six seven through nine. <laughs> My dad, we had five boys. He could never remember our names, so he'd just start he'd just start going down the list until he hit the right one. <laughs> All right, um, Proverbs eleven twenty six. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Okay, sells it. Huh. I thought my, what translation is that? New King James. New King James. <laughs> I just know I read it a little differently in my New American Standard, but uh, who, who, are, who am I to question the New King James? Let, let, me, <laughs> let me back up. What's that? It's supposed to be 24. I got the wrong verse. 11, ah, it's all my fault. 11.24 says, There is one who scatters, there yet is. increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Okay, that's the verse. 
So I apologize to the New King James for questioning it. <laughs> All right, Proverbs 19:17. <laughs> he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. All right, there's a lot of uh, teaching in the Bible about that, isn't there? About uh, giving to the poor. 22:9. A generous man will himself be blessed. For he shares his food with the poor. All right. God blesses the generous person. Luke 6, 38. This one's pretty famous. Given it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Given it will be given to you. And again, we have a couple of interesting analogies in that passage. One of them is the idea that the person's not being stingy. Let's say somebody comes to buy a bushel of grain and you pour it in there and kind of, here you go. But if you, if, you, if you did it that way, you'd shake it so it would settle and then you could get more in there. So you're being generous, you're giving the full amount as much as possible you could get in that bushel. And then the, the other thing was uh, if you had a robe, you could, you'd have to lift it up and, and put the extra in there, carry it home, because you have so much extra. And that verse is misused by the Word of Faith people, by the way. And if you, I don't know if you noticed this. If you were at the Justin Peters conference, he talked about a lot of the Word of Faith teachings. They always use the King James. Always. That is the only version the Word of Faith people will use. The old King James, not the new one. The old King James. Now, and there's several reasons why they only use the King James. One of them is because they can only get this concept of God having faith from the King James. There's a passage that talks about the faith of God. And because your average person that listens to these people don't know about the objective or the subjective genitive, they think the faith of God must mean God has faith. And then you then remember the teaching? Uh, I hope you didn't have to hear this, but I did when I was a Dummy. I'm gonna, I used to listen to these guys. That's why I call myself a dummy back then. They used to talk about the God kind of faith. So God used faith to create because God had faith in his own words. And if you have faith in your words, you can say whatever you want. And if you believe in your own words, you have the God kind of faith and you can create your own reality. So you can call things into existence. So they use the King James for that because they want to have this faith of God. Well, I pointed out in the mid-80s, when I first started writing, I wrote a, a book about faith, but it really was just a practice. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. I wasn't really a good writer. But I did make an analogy. If you're going to say the, the faith of God, the genitive construction, has to mean the God kind of faith, then the same construction is used in the fear of God, and we'd have to have the God kind of fear that God has fear. All right, and so it doesn't make any more sense to talk about the faith of God than, than being God's faith and the fear of God being God's fear. God is the object of our fear. He's the object of our faith. Okay, now, in that passage, Luke 6, I said all that to introduce Luke 638. The faith teachers say, read the passage. Look what it says. You can't say that these are spiritual blessings, they say, because it says, shall men give into your bosom? But it only says that in the King James. It doesn't say it in the other translations, and it doesn't say it in the Greek. The term men is not in the original. 
And they said, well, since it's men who are going to do the giving, it has to be money that they're giving. So you give the money, and you'll get a huge return of money because men are going to come and give it to you. But does anybody, uh, what, what are our other versions say? It doesn't use the term men, does it? It just shall, it says it shall be given to you. Now, Robert Stein, who has a commentary on Luke that I consult, and he was my hermeneutics teacher, by the way, at seminary, a great teacher, uh, he said that when it says it shall be given to you, it's a circumlocution for the term God. In other words, it's implied that God is the one who gives, not man. All right? So, yes, so Rich. Why is there a movement that people only believe in the King James Version? Oh, boy. All right. I've got, okay, thank you. Uh, I got, I've got more hate mail on that than about anything else I've ever written. I wrote an article refuting the King James only, and oh man, oh, people that believe that are, they're, they're just, uh, yeah, go to the website. I, basically, there's a, it's a conspiracy theory, right? There's a conspiracy theory that a bunch of evil men got together and corrupted all the Greek manuscripts, all right, and purposely in order to create a new age or some sort of thing like that, and that all of the Bibles, including the New King James, they won't read the New King James, even though it's based on the same manuscript as the King James, basically. All the Bibles are corrupted, and it's a conspiracy to take Christ and salvation and the blood out of the Bible. And so then they started out, some of them actually say the King James was directly inspired by God. Okay, and so the King James is inspired directly, and so the English of the King James has no flaws. It's exactly how God wanted it to be translated, and nobody can read any other version. And then they get more sophisticated in their arguments as, as they've been refuted by people. I would just say this. It's a conspiracy theory, and when people believe conspiracy theories, there's no evidence against it. There's no such thing as evidence against a conspiracy theory. Let me illustrate why. No, and then I gotta get back to this. Alright. I, I claim, let's say I say this. I claim that somewhere in Arizona, the Air Force has a warehouse full of UFOs that they confiscated. But there's a big conspiracy and nobody's gonna let, no, it's all being covered up. It's covered up by the Department of Defense. It's covered up by everybody. And nobody's gonna ever get to know that these things exist. But they're there. Now how are you gonna disprove that? Because they're in Nevada. Not... Oh, they're in Nevada! <laughs> 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 Alright. You know what, Rich? That, that's not really an astute reading award, but you get a free cup of coffee. That was the best comment of the morning. <laughs> They're in Nevada. All right. Luke 6.38. I'm going to Luke 6.38. God blesses givers. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 9.6. That's what it says in Luke 6.38. And here's what uh, Robert Stein, uh, my hermeneutics teacher who wrote a commentary on Luke, he says this about that. Human generosity is rewarded with divine generosity. That's, it says no more or no less than that, and that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 
And so the Bible teaches that God blesses givers. How does he do that? However he sees fit. Okay? But giving is to be done in faith like everything else. Not, not, grace by grace, that's what this is all about. So God graciously pours out bountiful grace, mercy, and gifts on us. And he changes our heart. And he makes us so that we're not selfish and covetousness by his grace. And we become generous people. And as that is happening, God is blessing us. That's the truth. That's what it teaches. That's what we're learning. Okay, Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Yeah, so there's the concept of sowing and reaping using a slightly different uh, context, but it's the same idea of sowing and reaping. I was going to quote this uh, David Garland here. It says, The idea that generosity to the poor would meet w- with overflowing blessing in return was common in Jewish think- thinking. And he mentions various proverbs and, and some intertestamental literature. In recent times, this idea has been perverted by unscrupulous ministers to entice people to believe that the more they give, the more they will get in return. They appeal to greed to encourage others to open their pocketbooks, and they give ultimately to get more for themselves. But this verse must be interpreted in in terms of what follows. Paul does not pass this principle off as a shrewd investment strategy on how to reap greater material blessings by giving a portion of it to others. If one gives it hope of attaining greater material prosperity, then one will only harvest spiritual poverty. Paul makes clear in what follows that God rewards generosity with material abundance to make it possible for people to be even more generous. Aren't we, aren't we also supposed to be um, what's called wise giver? We're supposed to be generous. Mm-hmm. But I, I understand it. Um, like I guess the Lord is more directing towards like widows and orphans. Like in First um, Timothy chapter five, talks specifically about the, the widows, the true widows, and then the orphans. And it mm-hmm. does talk about the um, man that he's supposed to, to provide for his family. Yes. And if he does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Yes. So just because that we're supposed to be generous, we're supposed to be wise about it, and who it is <laughs> that we're supposed to be giving to, right? Good point. So in other words. This idea of being generous doesn't mean we should give our money all to Benny Hinn. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Because I, I noticed, that, you know, he's only got like two or three of those $100 million mansions. So I, I think he needs another one. Right. Um, like, <laughs> no, well, I, I understand your point, and I'm agreeing with you. And even with the husband, I mean, we have supported husbands who were seminary students yeah. who did not work full-time. And I can see an exception for that, for those men of God who are trying to serve God then you can help to support them also. Sure. And so Christians have, and this is something Christians have done for centuries. This is not a new idea. Christians have always been generous. And they have not only helped the poor, they've, they've supported missions, they've built hospitals to care for the sick. Christians have, it's not a new idea. And you don't have to convert over to the social gospel to do this. And, and that was the point, Jan Markell and I have talked about this before, uh, these people are wanting to go to the left, like the Brian McLarens of the world or Tony Campolo. Let's let's go to the left 
and conscript the government to confiscate as much of everybody's money as possible, and then the government will take care of everything. But that's not... Uh, you may be, if you want to believe that politically, that's between you and, and however you decide you want to vote. That's your business. But that's not mandated by Scripture. That's my point. The Scripture mandates individuals to be generous. Yeah, what the God, God will set up whatever government we get, and I'm not too excited about the one that I think is coming. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll say no more. Okay, Patrick. <laughs> is it good to have, I, I believe it is, I believe it's good from this verse and many others to have that prospect of reward from God as a motivation, as a good motivation for us to give generously. Um, we shouldn't be afraid that, of the fact that oh, I can't be that selfish, like we think of it as selfish or something, that I want gifts from God, therefore I'm going to give. I don't think it should be our first motivation, but I think it's a good motivation to receive blessings okay. from God. Okay, uh, Patrick, I'll answer it this way. Everything that God asks us to do is to be by grace through faith. Okay? Amen. We're sanctified by grace through faith, right? What's our motivation? And so our motivation is faith and grace. <laughs> God graciously working. So just take the means of grace. I was talking yesterday, for those who were here, about the Bible and what God uses. Are we being selfish if we spend our time sitting under the teaching of the Bible because we know God will bless us? No, we're not being selfish. We're expressing faith. Okay? People that are wrongly motivated won't sit under the authority of the Bible. They don't like it. Okay? So let's transfer that into the idea of being generous. The word grace, charis, is used, I can't remember how many times, almost close to a dozen in these two chapters. And so a person who's got grace at work in their heart, who by faith believes what the Bible says and becomes generous, will be blessed. It's not selfish, it's the way God works in the lives of Christians who have faith. That's, that's, I would not mistake that for selfishness. And for one thing, if you're motivated, motivated by selfishness, you're also motivated by some kind of unbelief. And God only works by grace through faith, not by unbelief. Yes. Also, uh, if, if it were true that more than 2% of the body of Christ actually witnessed, I mean, we use, if we used our giving, you know, outside of just, you know, giving it to our church and used it as a springboard, I mean, I would, maybe, would it be possible that we'd have a whole lot more giving going on? Uh, because the motive is such that we're trying to use it as that springboard. Well, if people see the generosity of Christians, which they have over the centuries, it certainly uh, adorns, how would you say it? What is, isn't there a passage about something being adorned? There's a word in the Greek for adorn. Oh, boy, I, should, I, can't, I, I don't have my computer to find it. But we're not earning things, but we certainly, obedience and faith and grace and generosity, these things that are Christian virtues, Adorn the gospel. It shows that God is really working. Yes. The other thing I wanted to add was that, you know, here we're talking about funds that they were collecting. Yes. There's a very important aspect of having a generous spirit that's overlooked a lot. And that's just to have a generous spirit. It's not always about money. It's about the opportunities that God puts in front of you to be his hands. Yes. Generosity isn't just about money, although in this case they were talking about an offering. Generosity is an attitude of heart that, and you're right, as we are, have an attitude of generosity, it, it speaks of 
the grace of God at work in our heart because we know God's been merciful and generous to us and he's given to us far above anything we could ever think we deserve because we do not. Yes, uh, Bill. So uh, what happens, uh, what does God do when you give uh, your money through generosity uh, to heretical leaders who damage people? Uh, that's not good. No, what does God do to the, the giver? Well, it doesn't... Does the giver become a participant in criminal activities? And well, what does God do about that? Yeah, the, the Bible says, well, I don't know God, what God does, how he deals with people as individual to them, but... The Bible does direct us in this way. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So rather than sending our money to false teachers, we ought to reprove the false teachers in order to help people escape from their clutches. Yeah, I don't believe giving money to a false teacher, uh, that, that's a bad thing, whatever, whatever it is. Well, I was just going to say the the. What the people here today missed when we're getting into the whole passage is that the the basis of Christian giving, the whole basis of this this passage at eight and nine, is that God has come and give gave us life. He gave us such a magnificent, amazing gift in the blood of His Son that was most precious to Him to save us wretches from <laughs> what we already deserve. Amen. That. That working in us is where the gratitude and just responding with gratitude to what God has done is the basis for all the giving that Paul is talking about here. And that until we understand that, we won't give properly. And the, re, the way that Christians do give properly, the way that that happens, the way that, that that's expressed is being taught properly of the grace of God through the means of grace to the Scripture so that we can understand that and respond as we would normally respond with gratitude. Amen. I agree. That's a good... On that, we'll have fellowship time, 1030. We have church. So help with the chairs and enjoy the time of fellowship. <laughs>